Hello, this is Ian Wolfe, producer, host and writer for Diffusion Science Radio. This show depends on your support. Please make a donation directly with the PayPal button at www.diffusionradio.com. Or you can support Diffusion by downloading a free Audible book from audibletrial.com science. Or go to diffusionradio.com support and click on an Amazon link or buy a nano drone as a Christmas gift. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, spying dark matter and computing with exotic particles. But first up, here's the news. to slow aging. People suffering diabetes who took metformin lived longer than healthy people. The cheap drug that's currently used to treat adult onset diabetes, diabetes type 2, by controlling glucose levels has also been found to slow down aging and extend the healthy lives of roundworms and mice by 40%. In a surprising turnaround, the FDA has approved human clinical trials into using metformin as an anti-aging drug starting in 2016. If metformin slows aging in humans as much as it does in mice, that will make a huge difference to people's lives. But it's also opened the door for other anti-aging treatments to be properly funded, tested and ultimately made available to the public. Before this, the FDA has refused to approve clinical trials for anti-aging drugs because they wouldn't accept that aging was a disease or collection of diseases. The clinical trial will be called Targeting Aging with Metformin or TAME. T-A-M-E. Could a 70-year-old be as healthy and active as a 50-year-old? When you slow down aging, you slow down the onset of the diseases of aging and their progress as well. Metformin is a prescription medication that was developed from an extract of the French lilac, which was used for several centuries to treat diabetes. In 2014, the University of Cardiff studied 180,000 people and found that the half who have type 2 or adult onset diabetes that were taking metformin live longer than the controls who were people without diabetes, despite the fact that diabetes normally shortens people's lives by about 8 years. They tracked more than 180,000 people for six years. Almost 8,000 of them died. The people with diabetes given metformin had far higher survival rates than those given the alternative drug. But when they compared people with metformin with people who didn't have diabetes, the raw data seemed to show that survival levels were almost the same. When the data was adjusted to account for the higher obesity levels among the group with diabetes those given metformin had survival rates 15% higher. 
The paper was titled, Can People with Type 2 Diabetes Live Longer Than Those Without? A comparison of mortality in people initiated with metformin or sulfonuria monotherapy and matched non-diabetic controls. And was published in the Journal of Diabetes, Obesity and Metabolism. Mice treated with metformin increased their lifespan by nearly 40% and their bones were also stronger. The treatment changes the body in the same way as calorie restriction. Where reducing the calories in the mouse's diet but keeping the nutrients the same was shown to allow mice to live healthier for longer. Calorie restriction doesn't work as well in humans. It causes severe hormonal changes that aren't desirable. Nonetheless, most longevity researchers are very thin. The hope is that a wide variety of age-related problems, loss of muscle tone, dizziness, falls, dementia, loss of eyesight, all of these things can be put off for extra decades of healthy life. Scientists from a range of institutions are currently raising funds and recruiting 3,000 70 to 80-year-olds who have or are at risk of cancer, heart disease and dementia. Metformin is thought to act by making oxygen more available in our cells in a way that isn't understood yet. Metformin also appears to lower the incidence of cancer, including breast, lung, liver and prostate cancer. It helps slow heart disease and also acts against inflammation. Metformin also reduces borderline pre-diabetic people's chances of developing type 2 diabetes by a third. A 2014 study from Singapore found that people with diabetes who took metformin had a 51% reduction in cognitive impairment. Metformin isn't a cure for type 2 diabetes, however, and people with diabetes will eventually have to move on to more aggressive treatments. Metformin has been safely prescribed for people with type 2 diabetes for over 50 years, with only minor digestive side effects for a small number of people. Using the drug could cost less than $2 a week, or 25 cents a day. It's likely that once the mechanism of the drug is understood, that more precise drugs with a stronger effect and reduced side effects will be developed. If the clinical trials go well, metformin may join low-dose aspirin as a cheap anti-aging pill that everyone will be recommended to take when they're over 50. People getting less sick, less often, less quickly, on the cheap. listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Catherine de Berg Day is a PhD student at the University of Melbourne working with supervisors at Castro and the Anglo-Australian Astronomical Observatory to study a way of detecting dark matter using gravitational lensing. I met her at the annual Astronomical Data Analysis Software and Systems Conference. I began by asking her, what is dark matter? Of the matter in the universe, the vast majority of it is dark matter, which means that it's non-interacting, we can't, it doesn't emit any light that we can easily see, 
And one of the only ways that we can really get a handle on what's going on with it is through gravitational lensing. For those who aren't aware, what is gravitational lensing? So gravitational lensing is the phenomenon where mass in space bends the space-time it's sitting in. And so when something behind that emits light and the light goes past the mass, it gets bent on its path towards us, just like it would if it went through a glass lens or something like that. And so we can study the shapes and the, the properties of things behind a gravitational lens, and we can use that to infer things not just about the thing that's emitted the light that's been distorted, but also about the, the mass and the structure and the shape of the thing that's actually bending space-time and doing the lensing. So does the lensing make things bigger or in what way does it give you more information about what's between you and the thing supplying the light? Right, so there's a couple of effects that it has. It makes things bigger, it makes things brighter, it changes the shape of things and it also causes there to be multiple images of the same thing. And the degree to which these different effects happen is dependent on just how strong the lensing is. So if you have very strong lensing, then you get lots of images of the same thing and you get uh, really strong d distortions. So for example, if you Google Einstein ring, you'll see an example of where something that started off looking like a normal galaxy becomes a complete ring around the lens. And then if you go to weaker lensing, you get much less uh, obvious stuff going on. It just gets a slightly different shape, but maybe you can't identify that uniquely. So it's a lot harder to measure. So it's the dark matter that's causing the lensing effects that you're looking at. Is that right? Yep, that's correct. And how are you looking for these things? Well, that depends on how you go about measuring the weak lensing. So traditional weak lensing would involve measuring the shapes in, you know, the light coming from uh, lots and lots and lots of background sources. So that's the thing emitting the light behind the lens. And then the effect that lensing has on that stuff in what we call the weak regime, so that's where the lensing is not very strong at all, is you look for alignments in the shapes of all those things. And if they have any preferential alignment in any direction, then it's probably because of weak lensing. So that's the traditional way to do it. I've been looking at a new way to measure it using the velocity maps of galaxies. And what's a velocity map? <laughs> right, so <laughs> when a galaxy is rotating, and just so our galaxy, the Milky Way, is rotating, it's a spiral disk, if we were to look at that from the edge, then one half of it would be moving away from us relative to the centre, and the other part would be moving towards us relative to the centre. And so we can actually measure the velocities of all the little parts of the galaxy and use that to build up a map of all the motion in the galaxy, and that's called a velocity map. And typically, in a well-behaved galaxy, that's going to be um, symmetrical. So the axis that it's rotating about and the axis where the rotation is maximum, they're perpendicular to each other. So if you can picture it like a spinning top. And so by looking at these spinning tops, at looking at where the velocities are different in the galaxy, that gives you a clue about where the lensing is happening? So when that velocity map gets lensed, what happens is the light, the frequency of the light stays the same, but the position that the light ends up on the sky is different. 
And the effect that that has on the velocity map is that the axis of no rotation and maximum rotation, which, like I said, like a spinning top would be perpendicular to each other, they get distorted. So they're not, no longer perpendicular. And so if we can measure how much they deviate from being perpendicular, then we can relate that to whether they've been lensed or not. So when things don't look right, it's because there's lensing happening and the degree to which there's lensing tells you how much dark matter and what sort of... Does it tell you anything about the nature of the dark matter? So there are a couple of other effects which will uh, affect the, the amount they're perpendicular by, but the good news is that, as far as we can tell, the way that gravitational lensing affects it is unique. Nothing else does that. So while there are other things that might affect it, lensing does it in a way that nothing else does. It allows us, it's a little bit complicated. There's different ways that you could go about observing this and how many of these things you observe around one lens and things like that will determine how much information about the lens you can get from your measurements. If you made one measurement of a velocity map behind a lens, then you could measure the mass of the dark matter in the lens, which is important just in itself because understanding how much dark matter there is in each galaxy is very important. But then if you can make a couple more measurements, you start to get at more complicated stuff, like you are able to measure the shape of the dark matter halo around the galaxy. You can't really measure anything about the dark matter particles directly, specifically, but you can certainly get a lot of information about the halo. So what other things can you determine about the halo or about the, well, about the halo of dark matter? That's what you're, you're referring to? Well, for example, if you had enough of these measurements around a galaxy, you might be able to measure what kind of shape the halo has. So a simplistic model of a dark matter halo would assume it was completely spherical. And then there are some slightly more advanced models and some measurements which support them that suggest that they might be a kind of three-dimensional elliptical shape. And they may be more complicated than that, but the problem is that with current traditional weak lensing techniques, you can't measure shapes much more complicated than that easily. Whereas with this technique, if you had enough measurements behind a dark matter halo, you'd be able to measure whether they had more complex shapes than that, which is very important to help us understand the theory of the formation of galaxies and the evolution of galaxies. There are other applications of weak lensing. For example, you can measure weak lensing around clusters of galaxies, not just individual galaxies. And because they're much more massive, uh, they bend space to a much greater radius away from where they are. And so more things get lensed, so you have more galaxies to measure, so you can make more accurate measurements. So most weak lensing at the moment is studying clusters. It's actually, with traditional techniques, it's very hard to make a weak lensing measurement of an individual galaxy. It's only been done a few times, whereas with this technique it will be much easier. But Conversely, if you apply this technique to clusters, because it's easy enough even with individual galaxies, you can get very, very accurate measurements around clusters. And again, because it's more sensitive, another thing that we maybe will be able to do, but this is just speculation at the moment, is make weak lensing measurements of the dark matter in the filaments between galaxies. So, you know, galaxies kind of live in this filamentary structure of dark matter and they're strung out along filaments. Um, I think... Uh, there's only one, possibly two measurements of the mass in filaments from gravitational lensing, and I think that it will be possible to make more accurate measurements of that with this technique in the future. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Catherine, thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. That was Catherine de Berg Day talking about using gravitational lensing to detect dark matter. Catherine's a PhD student at the University of Melbourne with supervisors at the Centre for All Sky Astronomy, Castro, and the Anglo-Australian Astronomical Observatory. This is a story of the future, but not the very distant future. It is a story that might have taken place the day after tomorrow. Like all stories of the future, however, its beginnings lie far back in the past. As far back as the first man on Earth to gaze at the stars and wonder if someday, somehow, he might travel to them. Travel through space. Sometimes, mishaps occurred, and men paid for them with their lives. But the work went on. And now, get your sparklers ready. It's bright spark time again. Sarah Brooker and Neil Byrne run the science communications company Science in Public. They created the Fresh Science National Competition to encourage early career scientists to find the story in their science and get it out to the public. The Bright Spark Challenge is for scientists to explain their research in the time it takes a sparkler to burn down. Here's Robert Pfeiffer from Macquarie University. He has until his sparkler runs out, after which Sarah Brooker will ask him some questions. She'll also ask the audience to contribute some questions, which the microphone doesn't pick up very well. Fortunately, she immediately repeats them so you don't have to miss out. Robert Pfeiffer from Macquarie University, come on stage. Here is your tool, your microphone. Exotic particles are not in your computer or your mobile phone yet. For the last 50 years, we've been using silicon microchips and we've been making them go faster and faster by making the details on the chips smaller and smaller. But sooner or later, we're going to hit a limit because you can't make a feature on a chip smaller than one atom. And what are we going to do then? This, is, this limit is coming up sooner than you think and sometime in the next 10 years or 15 years, we're probably going to have to come up with some brand new technology to get around this problem. Now, anions are these exotic particles which I'm studying, and they might offer a solution to this problem. I'm modeling them using supercomputer studies, and what I'm finding is that the behavior of these particles is even stranger than we expected, and that's a really good thing, because that's going to help out. Well done. Well done. With time to spare. Anions. So I've heard of gluons and quarks. So you reckon anions are kind of quirky and they've got strange behavior. So how do you find them? Well, there's a bit of good news, actually. They're much easier to get your hands on than things like, say, the Higgs boson. You don't need a 30-kilometer tunnel full of particle accelerator. You can just do it with a very small two-story piece of equipment in your own dedicated laboratory. 
which you happen to have at Macquarie University. Oh, I simulate their behaviour on a supercomputer, but there's some guys at Princeton who do, and they're getting great results. Okay, so uh, why did you go looking for the anion when, um, you know, there's been a 50-year search for the Higgs boson, and we've discovered gluons and quarks, so what made you look, look for an anion? Well, we've kind of known that they were out there to find for about also getting on 30 years now. Uh, but the actual challenge of making the situation, making the circumstances in which they just pop into existence in our experiment, that was actually really difficult. And so to actually, we're actually starting to see these particles appear in laboratories, well, just this year really for the most, for the most startling results, the, the highest quality ones. So this is the time, really. So when you say starting to appear, so are these a new particle, or are you talking about subatomic particle? So this is, this is actually quite a complicated question for anions. So I'll just give you more of an indication of what's going on. When you see a Mexican wave go around a stadium, you can point to where the wave is. But what is a wave? It's something that's going on as a whole bunch of people stand up and sit down, and an anion is kind of like that in a sea of other particles on the surface of a chip. Yes. So if it takes a two-story building to find one, and you have to have a supercomputer to simulate it, how far off do you think it'll be before we can actually put them in every person's mobile phone? And <laughs> yeah, that's right. It only takes two stories in a supercomputer. I mean, we've got that around. So how much longer before you can speed up my mobile phone with uh, quantum computing? Well, you know, phones are getting bigger. <laughs> Seriously, I think uh, maybe we're probably looking at a 20 or 30 year technology here, so don't be expecting it tomorrow, but if things carry on the way they are, it's definitely within reach within our lifetimes. Yes. So how is this going to transform computing as a whole? Right. So the first people who are going to get the benefit from this are the big corporations. People like Google and Apple. And there's flow-on benefits for you there. If you've tried using Apple's dictation software, what happens is it sends away your speech to a computer that decodes it and sends it back to you as text, types it in on the screen. All of that, all features like that, which involve searching through a database of sounds or findings, they're all going to get cheaper, faster, more powerful behind the scenes. What you're going to see is just a smooth, continued improvement in computing technology. You're not going to see that wall that we just vaulted past. So faster database searches. Faster database searches. A lot of people like looking at the data security side of things. They have applications for secure communications, say with internet banking, information transfer, Really though, we talk in terms of, this is basically, we're still really exploring the full potential of these. We know a large number of areas they're useful. Some of them are a bit, a bit esoteric. Factorizing very large numbers is of great appeal to cryptographers and mathematicians and not very many others. Database searches though, you don't realize it, but you're probably searching databases several hundred times a day. Every time you Google something. Yeah, where's it going to end? We don't actually know. Some professors are fond of saying that the biggest use is the one we haven't figured out yet, but time will tell. We have two questions, one at the back and then down to the front. Thank you. I was going to ask you 
Are you talking about quantum computing or are you talking about something different? So computing with anions is actually a form of quantum computing. It's one that's believed that once we've got these particles and we can manipulate them on a chip, it's going to be the most stable, the most robust, the most reliable form of quantum computing. The challenge is getting there. He needs a few more stories of buildings and a few more supercomputers on your shopping list. Yes, down here. Yes, this uh, anion sounds a bit exotic and strange and has odd behavior. You said so yourself, so I'm not um, demoting your particle um, or, or being rude to it in any way. So how are you going to actually harness that energy or, or that behavior? So don't worry, anions are totally okay with being a bit strange. The amazing thing about anions is that you don't actually need to even bring them into contact with one another to do these calculations. For certain types of anions, you can do any conceivable calculation just by taking enough anions and moving them around one another in a tangly, complicated pattern, and they will do millions of calculations simultaneously and then select out the one that gives you the right answer. They just do. They just do it. So thank you very much, Robert. All the best. I do hope to hear from you more in the years to come. Thank you. Thank you. That was Robert Pfeiffer from Macquarie University. A big thank you to Science in Public for permission to broadcast the Bright Spark Challenge. You're still a citizen with the power to vote. Living in a scientific age, we need citizens who know enough about science to make intelligent decisions about what they do. Are we going to use it constructively to promote peace and, and give the world freedom from want? It'll be up to you and you too. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends and follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including two Triple H in Hornsby, Karingai, two NVR in Nambaka Valley, two XX in Canberra, and three MBR in the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, then you can explore more than 700 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are tagged with keywords so you can listen to exactly what you're interested in. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. 
When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.